Billy, I'm gonna put my watch up here. It don't make no difference. It don't make no difference, Billy said. It hasn't made no difference yet, has it? Uh-huh. No, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I like Josh Turner coming and celebrating fellowship with us in the morning. You know what I'm saying? I like his voice. Uh, I wish I could sing that deep. There's a guy named uh, Ronnie Bass that goes to Red Oak. He's got a bass. He sings bass uh, there at Red Oak uh, in the choir. I think he's in his early 80s. And I, I, one time I was singing in the choir with him, and I said, man, I wish I could sing like you. He said, you can, just let it go. Just let it go. And I said, yeah, I don't think I was genetically predispositioned to have a voice that goes that low. So, but anyway, um, we're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning. The book of Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible. Going way back. Way back. Way back in time to some words that were written probably about 3,500 or 4,000 years ago. Um, words that were originally written in, the, in Hebrew, Hebrew, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 7 of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, 1 through 7. Now, as, as you're turning there to that passage of Scripture, you're probably going to see a title that says the Ten Commandments as, 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 as it covers. And, and to go ahead and spoil it for you just a little bit, we're going to be covering the first three commandments. I'm not signing that God gave to his nation Israel. And I want to give you a little background as you're turning to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, Israel has just left Egypt. And you guys are probably like, hey, we already know that. Well, they were in captivity for over 400 years. Yeah, Justin, we already know that too. Okay? okay. They were enslaved and mistreated. Yeah, Justin, we already know that. Okay, I, I get you. They assimilated to Egyptian culture. Now, many of you are going to say, well, what in the world do you mean by that? Well, part of the background is, is that, if you recall, they, they didn't understand who God really was. They had gotten away because they were enslaved by this culture. They trusted God. They had a relationship with God the best that they knew how. But now they're coming into their own as a nation of people. And because of this nation of people, they are going to, to uh, learn how to be the way God wants them to be. So in other words, they're at a point in this time in the nation of Israel's history where they're having a come to Jesus meeting. They're going to have a meeting, and they're going to learn how to be like God. God's going to give them instructions of how to live. Because, you know, we need instructions on how to live. They need instructions on how to live. And for over 400 years, they were in a land that wasn't theirs. And for the majority of that 400 years, they were enslaved and they were mistreated. And they didn't get to practice their religious Beliefs the way they were supposed to. So God brings them out by miracles and power and majesty to show his power to the whole world and to the nation of Israel. And now he's going to give them instructions. He's going to say, these are my expectations for you to live with me, for you to commune with me. He gives them guidance. And you understand that we need instructions about God. This was also a part of God's opportunity in this background of where we're at to give them an understanding of God's omnipresence, the fact that he's ever-present, he transcends time and space. It also is a, an opportunity for him, to, for him to talk about his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness that he has, all power in the world, and the omniscience, the all-knowing attribute of God. But more importantly, more importantly, perhaps the most important reason why God can have this meeting on Mount Sinai with the nation of Israel is because of his love for the people of Israel and ultimately his love for the world. 
Let's read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. And the word of our Lord, he says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for this time that we have the, to open your word this morning. To go through the first three commandments that talk about how we should have a relationship with you and the respect and the love and the reverence that we should have for you. I pray that today as you, you lead me to this passage of scripture as you have and you lead me through it with your people, that the words I have in this outline are just dots to jog my memory, but you via the Holy Spirit give me the words to preach to your people this morning. I pray that this is the start of something beautiful, a revival for us to have, not only within our church and in our community, but throughout the whole entire world, that we will turn to you to serve you and have the relationship that you expect us to have with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. So let's, let's look at this. Uh, in detail, just a little bit more background information at verse 1, where it, uh, we have to understand it says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, He did not communicate to Moses the prophet during this time. He communicated to the nation of Israel. And if you have any questions about that, you can look in verse 19, and it says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us, or we will die. They were fearful of the Lord, which is the same attitude we should take. When it comes to God. And I think the majority of the problems in this world revolve around the fact that we do not have a healthy reverence and respect and a fear for the Lord. In Proverbs, in our study that we're doing in our Bible studies, we were studying the book of Proverbs. And in the beginning it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So God gives these instructions to his people. He's speaking to his people. And he gives them ten basic commandments as we're going to go through this over the next week or so after this. But the Jews had 613 laws that they're required to keep. 613. And ten of those are these ten commandments. To be a good Jew, you've got to keep all 613. And these are the first ten. And these ten transcend, doesn't matter what, what denomination you happen to be, everybody knows the ten commandments. But understand this. God gives us these words because he says, you, you shall not have no other gods before me. In verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the Lord under the earth. And in verse 7, you will not take the name of the Lord in vain. Why is it significant that he uses the pronoun you? Because he's signifying one thing. The nation of Israel, the body of Christ, in this instance, us here, we should be unified as one. One, one faith. One group. One baptism. Paul speaks to that in the book of uh, his letter to the church in Corinth. 
We are one baptism, one, one faith, one Savior in Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be unified and not a whole lot of unity in the church today. In fact, the actual Judaism itself has broken up into three, some people would say four different sects of, of Judaism because they have not stayed unified. Satan is the author of confusion. He is the author of deceit. And he is the author of divisiveness. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, this is a covenant, God, but this is the beginning of the Sinaitic covenant. If those of you who, who aren't familiar with this, because they're on Mount Sinai, it's given the name Sinaitic covenant. See, they weren't rocket scientists back then. They made stuff easy for people like me to understand. So he has this covenant, and the, the covenant is between two people. That's the significance, the other part of the significance about the pronoun you. God and Israel, one unified body and God. Two people being united in this covenant. And this is called a Hased covenant. It's, it's a, it's a Hebrew-Semitic origins, and it basically says if person A rescues, benefits, voluntarily person B, then person B owes loyalty, gratitude, and servitude to person A. Seems simple enough, does it not? If God rescues the nation of Israel, which he did, voluntarily, which he did, out of his love and mercy and grace for them, which he had, then Israel owes God reverence and loyalty because of the relationship he had with them. Does that make sense with everybody? That's why he calls the nation of Israel the bride. Are we, are we, we understand that. That's why in the book of Amos and in the other minor prophets, Micah and even Isaiah and Jeremiah, he accuses the nation of Israel playing the harlot because they are his bride and they have left their first love. So now he gets into these Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Little G, little G God. No other gods before me. Well, you know, Hebrew doesn't really translate into English the best. So there's actually a couple of different meanings behind this passage. And the meaning says, you shall have no other gods before me, beside me, in front of me. It can take all of those things. And depending on your English translation, depends on how it's worded. But what it means is there is nobody else other than God, period. Because in this area of the world, and we've seen it through the history of the world, most people recognize the Greek and Roman pantheon of God. That's a pantheistic view, or pantheism, is a view of that there are several gods, and they all uh, are worthy of worship. And what God is trying to say here is that there are no gods but me. Nothing else is worthy of worship. Nothing. Period. End of sentence. Case closed. Some people look to the heavenly host, the angels, for instance, and they want to associate them with being divine and worshiping them. And God here is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. It is a sin to worship anything other than God. And I know the horse is dead, and I know he's laying on the ground, and I continue beating him. But I want us to understand the point I'm trying to make. If we look to anything with a divine reverence, we are taking attention away from God and giving it to something else that is not due that, that respect and that reverence, and that is sinful. Everybody with me? 
simple-minded person a lot of times, so I'll find the best way to explain this and hit this home is to say this. Everybody knows what a one-size-fits-all cap is, right? Unless you got a really small head, it's probably going to fit, or a really big head, it might not fit. Well, God is a one-size-fits-all God. If you accept him, there's no room for anything else. See how easy that was? How do we get practical application out of this? Practical application. It's always important when we're going through the scriptures on a Sunday morning to not only study it and understand what it means, but to have an application. Now, some of you are like, Justin, you already kicked the horse. He's, he's, he's laying the ground. He's done. What more application could we get? Well, I'm going to tell you. Whatever takes the place of God, big G, is a God little G. I'm going to say that in a different way. Whatever we put, whatever we put in our lives, we're going to get to the aisles here in a second, but whatever we put in our lives that takes a place of worship or something to a superior position in our lives, well, God, we're on the verge of making a God, little you, in our lives. Some of the common items people worship other than God are self which is called humanism. We can define that at a later date. Or money. Or materialistic things. Materialism. There's a lot of isms in the world. A lot of isms in the world. What do we elevate to a position of superiority in our lives? And if we're honest with ourselves, what do we have faith in? Is basically what I'm getting at. Whatever we have faith in in this world is the God of our lives. Or God of our lives. Depending upon how many things we put a lot of faith in. In verse 4, he continues, God continues to his people, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. The language is pretty explicit. And it's redundant in its explanation. In the recourse... Is even more extensive in verse 5. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God wants to show how serious this offense is, but what, what is idolatry? Well, we have to understand the cultural context here a little bit, and I'm going to help build that bridge between now and 4,000 years ago of what they meant. And there's a, there's a couple big words that I really don't really understand all what they mean, so I had to look them up myself. But to venerate something is to deify it or worship it or honor it with a devotion. So the word veneration means that we are honoring something or giving something some devotion, an object. So idolatry, in this sense, was to worship or honor something with a specific reverence that was made, an image, okay? As if it had a divine attribute or characteristic. A good picture of this is to look at the various things that were in the tabernacle or the temple or even the church. We don't venerate or worship or deify the hymnal or the pew, or the carpet, or the altar, or the altar. We don't do any of that. Just like the Jews were not supposed to worship the actual altar, or the temple, or the incense, or anything else. 
They did not serve as idols to be worshipped. They served as tools to help commemorate and fellowship with God. Everybody with me? However, a lot of times, what we do in our church is we worship and we idolize specific things and we don't want to let go of past traditions or past things or make things better because we hold on to them so tightly that we have an idol that we think that's what we have to have in order to worship God. That's sinful. And, and honestly, it's shameful. We have come as a nation since the 50s and 60s to now, in the past 70 years, yeah, 70 years, I have to think real quick. The past 70 years, even maybe even going back for probably 80 years, where we've turned away from God. In fact, in Chronicles, it's recorded Solomon, um, uh, God telling Solomon, if my name, if my, I, I'm not going to quote it because it just came to my mind, I forget it, but it basically says that if, if my people who are called by my name will repent and turn from their wickedness, I will, I will heal their land, basically, is the summary. How in the world do we expect God to heal our land and rescue us from our, our sinfulness if we continue to live in it? People keep putting that on Facebook and, and preaching that from the pulpits, and that's a great thing to preach. Don't deny it. But if we sit back and we think that what we're doing on this earth right now is what is, is honoring to God as a big, giant group, we are sadly mistaken. Because if, if we were doing what we were supposed to be doing, then he would hear from heaven, he would reach down, he would rescue us, and he would restore us. But we have to look at what we're doing and say, obviously something's missing. Right? Because if we hold that to be true and self-evident as we do and we claim it, then we have to understand that if something hasn't happened yet, something's not right. Is that, is that, is that logical? So to make that conclusion, to go from one point to the next. So what is it right? Maybe it's because we don't have a relationship with God that we need to have. And maybe it's because the people who think they have a relationship with God don't. The basic just in our practical context here where it says no idols or graven images is basically what do we have that's an inanimate object that we deify or honor in such a way that we make our life into a ritualistic lifestyle. I'm a creature of habit. I don't like change. I'm honest. Anybody else? All right. The rest of you didn't raise your hand a liar. You know what we, with the, the Jewish people, <clears throat> get a bad rap a lot of times. We talk about how they refused Jesus and had, had issues to do with power and prestige and all this other kind of stuff. But you know what, when we look at them, and one of the first things that we say about the Pharisees is that they're legalistic. We ain't no better. We're not. Things have to be a certain way or we can't have church. And I'm not picking on anybody in particular here. I'm just going to say it. I had more conversations about we can't have homecoming anytime other than here because it's not made. What can I, 
What kind of sense does that make? We get so wrapped up in a timeline, a chronology in our lives, in these traditions that we have, that we forget what we're celebrating. We forget who we're celebrating. We make it about us instead of making it about who it's supposed to be about. And the problem, and you want to know why churches are struggling today? You want to know why people are having a hard time wanting to associate with church? Because it's so rigid and inflexible on tedious things that don't really matter that people lose sight of the forest of the trees. That's why churches struggle. That's why churches that exist like Darlington are falling apart and churches that are brand new with church plants are thriving. Because Darlington, uh, Red Oak, other churches, their numbers dwindle and, and they ebb and flow depending on where you're at. But the reason why there's a lot of churches that are dying in North Carolina, across the country, and all around the world, is because we get so hung up on these little idols that we have that things have to be a certain way. And I'm not trying to be ugly or mean here, but I'm just saying, think about this from a perspective. What does it matter where people sit in the church? What does it matter what color the carpet is? What does it matter? I'm, I'm a hymnal guy. I am. I like hymns. I do. I like contemporary music. I like them both. If I had to choose personally, I could, I'd sing out of a hymn book every Sunday. Went by the way a bit. I like hymns. Amen. But, but, <clears throat> what harm is it in singing the song if you're glorifying God no matter who sings? Whether it's on the screen, whether it's in a book, whether you have it memorized, like Marianne. I think every single song in the hymn book she's got memorized. I've never seen her open a hymn book. She sings from memory. But when are we going to open our eyes, take the blinders off, and realize that we idolize almost every single thing we do in the church service? And to help you out, I'm guilty. Because i got to have the doxology to preach. I tell people that's how I know it's my time to talk after the doxology, it's a cue for me to preach. I like the doxology. It's a beautiful prayer. Do we have to have it to have a church service? No. Do we have to have an invitation? Well, we should ask God to bless our service, yeah. Does it have to be after I do the announcements? No. Do we have to have a call to worship? No. If we go to some of these other places in India and in China and some of these places that you're not supposed to be and proclaim the gospel, you can get kicked out of the country for doing it. We go to some of these third world places where these missionaries are at. They don't have any of this formality stuff that we have here to have church. You know what they do? They come together, they fellowship, they focus on who it's supposed to be about, and they don't idolize a bunch of trivial stuff. They, they worship and deify the one who's supposed to be worshiped and deified. God. That's it. They have a sermon. They preach the Bible. Some churches, believe it or not, struggle with the fact that if the preacher talks for more than 25, 30 minutes, they want to hang them outside. I'm glad I'm not one of those churches. I've been fired a long time ago. We need to get back to the days of old. Where people wanted to come here to gospel preach. You know, revivals back, revivals today, three, four, five days maybe, back in the day, I'm talking way back, before any of us were on this earth, way back in the day, they have revivals two or three hours every single night for weeks. And the words of Sweet Brown, ain't nobody got time for that, that's what people say. 
Who's got time to go sit in church for two hours every night for a week? Who doesn't have time for that? I like to watch TV at night. But I should take time away from the TV to go hang out with Jesus. What do you think? When worship of God becomes being part of a system, instead of being about Him, we idolize it. We become legalistic. Let's go to the next one. He says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? You know, there's a lot of good um, books written about this. There's a lot of good articles that are written about this. If you do enough research, you can find them. Because one of the first things people want to say is, well, what's that mean? Someone uses profanity and they use the Lord's name in vain. They're like, well, I'm not taking his name in vain. Really? You're not? Hmm. To take someone's name in vain means to misuse the name. To misuse it. Making oneself out, like for instance, the context here is like to make oneself out to be a follower of God, in which case you're really not. So basically, if, if, if somebody was to say that they were a follower of God or a follower of Jesus Christ by saying, I'm a Christian, and they were not truly a Christian, they've taken the Lord's name in vain. Because they misappropriated the name in association with themselves, and it's a lie. Some, some people who may be legal, legal-minded attorneys may say, well, that's not true. Well, we're not asking for your opinion. We're talking about the Bible says. The Bible says that's a, that's a sin. You cannot associate God with something that's sinful and say it's still God. Right? Last time I checked, the Bible teaches God hates sin. And you can reference Matthew 5, 33 through 37 and James 5, 12. Making false statements related, related to God or about God are sinful and taking the Lord's name in vain. Profanity. What does it mean to profane something? Well, it, it's disrespectful. It, 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 it may be considered vulgar. And it shows contempt for something. When you profane it. So to use profanity is an act of disrespecting and showing contempt for God. That's pretty, that's pretty, uh, pretty easy. Pretty easy. Um, but why is it so important? Why, why is it so important? Well, why, why is it so important to, to not take the Lord's name in vain? We've talked about what it means to take his name in vain. We, 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 I hope we have a brief understanding of that. But why is it so important? A name is the actual essence of the person. Everything about them is linked to their name. I've met a lot of people in my short tenure on the earth in a lot of different states that we've lived in, as Lisa has, and as anybody who's been on the earth any period of time. And what's the first thing somebody says if you appear to be a good person? Somebody mentions your name. Oh, I know them. They're, they're, they're good people. Matter of fact, you go to Billy and you say, hey, you know, yeah, he's a good guy. If, if he's a good guy. If he's not, he doesn't say, oh, I don't talk about that. <laughs> but a name is who we, how we associate character, reputation, their values, and their influence. Think about that. That's why it's important not to take the Lord's name in vain. Because if we show contempt for the Lord, or we associate him with a lie, then when we somebody else who hears that and they witness that, they don't look at God as a sovereign, loving God. 
They look at God as something different. It mars his reputation. It mars his influence, his positive influence on the world. And believe it or not, Christians probably take the Lord's name in vain more than non-Christians do. Because we associate ourselves with Christianity, a religion, a belief system that encourages us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And we live however we want. That is not Christianity. That's why Christians get a bad name. Everybody in this room, if you're not a hypocrite, raise your hand. Alright, I'm glad we all we all are the same consensus. We're all we're all good. We all are hypocritical in our ways because we're not always perfect. But we're supposed to strive to live our lives. We are continually supposed to strive via the power of the Holy Spirit to live our lives in reflection of who we believe in and what we believe in. And if we choose to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and we willingly, willfully continue to sin in our lives, knowing, knowingly sin, then we are effectively taking the Lord's name in vain. If we are a drunkard, purposefully, willingly wanting to get drunk every single night, and we say that we're a Christian, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. If we are Christian and we want to fornicate all the time and not follow God's laws and we know that it's wrong and we continue to do it, we're taking the Lord's name in vain. We are associating Jesus Christ because being a Christian, when you say I'm a Christian, you're saying I am made in the image of, I'm being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I'm being perfected by the Holy Spirit. That's what you're saying when you say I'm a Christian. And if we choose to live a life that's full of selfishness and living our own, living our own selfish desires, we are taking the Lord's name in vain because we are associating Jesus Christ with sin. You know, the call to Christianity and the call to discipleship are synonymous. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we make a covenant with Him. In other words, a, a ascetic covenant, like we talked about earlier. He voluntarily laid His life down for us, and in turn, when we accept Him, when we accept that sacrifice, we accept Him as Lord of our lives, as leader of our lives, as King of our lives, our High Priest even. He holds all those offices over our lives. So therefore, it is our duty if we claim him as Lord, to be loyal to him and serve him and follow his instructions. And if we choose not to do that, we got problems. If we willingly choose every single day to not follow Jesus Christ, what have we done? We made him have to be a liar in us too. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches discipleship with Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus even goes into in, in Luke and Mark, he talks about the cost of discipleship. It's costly. It's not something to be taken into lightly. If we want Jesus to be God, big G, of our lives, then we have no choice but to serve him in all that we are and all that we have. 
That means we don't put anything else before him. There are no gods before me, he says. And he says, don't make any idols. Don't become ritualistic and all this stuff because all this could be gone. And we still have church, I told you. If, we, if, the, if the winds came and blew the building down, the earth opened up and swallowed the building, and there was nothing left here, we could still meet on this corner on Sundays outside at 90 degrees and have church. Hope everybody will still show up. Because we wouldn't have any electricity or internet to do this with it. And more importantly, we can't take the name of the Lord in vain. You know, I've been struggling lately, like I said, that God was dealing with me with, with a message to give to the people. And perhaps this is the start of the revival because we need to understand our responsibilities as a church. And I'm going to go back to what I've been told. There were times 30 years ago where this church had no money. Is that about right? 30 years or so? They didn't pay their bills so they could pay the pastor. And they got an extension on the bill so they could pay the bill later. What I was told from reliable sources. I know those times nobody wants to go back to. But who got you through that? God did. Because you were faithful in trying to do the mission that God's called you to do. There are missions in this community and around the, the region that we need to support. And the people inside this church, and I'm not talking here, I'm talking about the people out there that are part of this church, need to serve and give in any way they can to facilitate the mission of the church. And for some reason, there's an interlock that prevents people, well, it's not my job. What kind of sense does that make? It's everybody's job, right? Ain't nobody retired in the Bible from preaching Jesus? I ain't never seen a pastor that's ever retired. Matter of fact, the only pastor I seen close to retire is when he died. He preached. He had to sit down because he couldn't stand up anymore. He sat behind the table. Remember Dr. Paul? And you could barely understand him. It sounded like he mumbled, but he still preached. It's a beautiful picture of how we're supposed to serve the Lord. Retire from your secular job, serve the Lord. Huh? And the retirement is out of this world. You feel me? You there's not a single retirement benefit package on the face of the planet that outlives God, but I tell you what. But we've become too focused on the things of this world and the luxuries and the comforts of this world to let go of those and let God. I think that's the biggest problem with the world today. We can't let go and let God. We want to hold on to stuff so tight. And it causes us to have other gods before him. It causes us to have idols. And it causes us to take his name in vain. To dishonor the name of God. So today I hope and I pray that we do a reflection. Where are we at with Jesus? Take an inventory of our lives. See what we believe in because what we believe is what we do. Our belief system is, is both noun and verb. It, it, they're, they're intertwined, inextricably linked. What we believe should flow out of our actions. And likewise, our actions should reflect what we believe. Let's pray together.